perfect. Good morning. Uh, my name's Mike Boomis. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Patrick Gill, our senior minister, is up north officiating a wedding this morning, or this weekend. Um, so has asked me to fill in this morning. It's exciting. We're kicking off a new series for the month of September. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Patrick asked me to start a new series, and then I realized, well, he can clean up any mess I make for the next four weeks, so no big deal. Um, but... Uh, the sermon series this morning for the month of September, as per the front of the bulletin, it's titled Our Five Core Values. Okay, And uh, over the course of this month, we're going to unpack those five core values that will help us better understand how we go about fulfilling the mission statement that we have here, which is being disciples that love and live like Jesus. Come on, projector. There we go. So we know that the mission statement hopefully looks familiar to everybody here. We, we say that we are being disciples um, who love and live like Jesus. Mission statements, this one and mission statements in general, typically define uh, who we are, what we are. Okay, The core values are designed to exp- kind of give more detail on how we're going to go about fulfilling that mission statement. It's the things that we're going to do. It's the things that we value, that we adhere to, that we ascribe to, that we say if we do these things on a regular basis, then we stand a better chance than not of fulfilling the mission statement of being disciples who love and live like Jesus. I think that's a good mission statement for any church, and here's why. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God. As dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God's word calls us to emulate God's example. And he gives us this perfect example in Jesus Christ of what it would be like to be God in the flesh walking here on earth. So there's really no better way for us to follow God's example than walking in the way of Jesus and being disciples that love like him, that live like him. As goes on to tell us in in 1 John 4, 17, how we can tell if we're being successful in our mission. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Simply put, in this world, we will look like Jesus. If we are effectively loving and living like Jesus, people will recognize that in us. So there it is. Uh, we'll know confidently that we're achieving our mission here if we are like Jesus. So let me ask, how's that going? Well, it's pretty good, right? I mean, every day people are coming up and say, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were Jesus. Um, does that happen to you a lot when you're out on the street? No, not, not every day anyway, right? So loving and living like Jesus. Being his disciples, which is just another way of saying being his followers. Jesus says in John 13, which gives further credence, I think, to our mission statement, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I mean, he's making it really clear that if we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to be a follower, we're going to love, and we're going to love like Jesus did. He has a way of really, I think, cutting to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? I mean, all of Scripture, all the law, all the writings, all the prophets, Jesus says, really comes down 
to two great commandments and one great commission. And we know these pretty well, I would hope. The great commandments of number one, love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And number two is to love each other as he loved us. And then she gives us a great commission to go and make disciples, to share the truth of who Jesus is and what he does across the world. So if that's really what it all boils down to, the question, at least in my mind, is then why is the Bible so thick? I mean, there's 31,102 verses in the Bible. And the, and the verses that Jesus uses to give us two great commandments and a great commission are really fewer than 20 verses that appear in Scripture. So if no further instructions are required, why would God waste so much of his breath? I mean, we believe Scripture is God-breathed. And so, in a sense, God would be wasting his breath if all he needed to tell us was two great commandments and one great commission. God revealed the entirety of Scripture because in his perfect love and his perfect wisdom, he knew that we would need to not only know who and what we're called to be, but that we'd also need to have more specific, complete, and thorough instructions. We'd need a roadmap. We'd need an instructional guide to help be like Jesus. So in the same way, the five core values that we're going to be looking at and studying in the month of September will help us understand how we can go about more effectively fulfilling the mission statement of being disciples that, that love and live like Jesus. God didn't just say, hey, I need you to be like my son. Good luck with that. He provided a plethora of further instruction and clarification and examples, revelation of truth to help us and enable us to be more like Jesus so that we could be enabled to be his disciple or his follower. Now, here's an example uh, from the real world of how shared core values can impact and influence and ultimately accomplish the uh, mission of an organization. This is the Gallagher way. I work for a company called Gallagher. And these are our shared or core values. Now, we have a mission statement, and, and I honestly couldn't quote it. Um, I don't think most of the 27,000 employees worldwide could just rattle off the mission statement. But, man, we know the Gallagher way. We know these shared values. These shared values say this is, that w- this is the rock foundation of the culture of who we are and how we're going to be. Um, it, it's the concepts that we at Gallagher passionately adhere to. And in the same way with our church's core values, we desire to passionately adhere to them. Um, I highlighted a couple of them. It's boring. It's insurance. But um, we support one another. But we believe in one another. Empathy for the other person is not weakness. Uh, never ask someone to do something you wouldn't do yourself. We run to problems, not away from them. And we adhere to the highest standards of ethical and moral conduct. Now, for example, Ethisphere Institute has named our company one of the world's most top 100 most ethical companies. We're the only insurance and risk management entity on that list. And you think about it, I don't think we would have gotten there accidentally. We had to express that this is who we are and this is how we desire to be. And then here's the things, here's the behaviors that we're going to emulate, that we're going to do consistently to become what our mission statement calls us to be. So, Uh, the next slide, if you will. Okay. So we've talked about the Gallagher way. Now I want to talk about the Jesus way. 
The early church, the initial followers of Jesus, referred to themselves simply as the way. These are the verses just in Acts alone where the church and the followers of Jesus are referred to or are calling themselves the way. And you can read these uh, as I'm talking if it's more interesting. Um, The point here is the first Christians weren't people who just believed in Jesus. Uh, Essentially, they were Jews who stopped following Jewish way and made a decision that they were going to follow the way of Jesus. And then eventually, other early Christians, the Gentiles, uh, also became followers of the way of Jesus. And they were committed to being disciples who loved and lived like Jesus, the Jesus way. Now think about this. Everybody in this world is on some kind of a way, is take a, a way. Whether they're intentional about it or not, everyone is, is taking a way or is on a way of one kind or another. You know, Frank Sinatra, we know how he did it. He said, I'm going to do it my way. Well, most people do. Um, I've often said, if you ever talk to me, there's really only two kinds of people in the world, right? Those that know and follow Jesus and those that don't. Well, Dr. Timothy Keller, who's a great uh, preacher and speaker, he actually breaks it down to three more distinctive groups. He says there's three kinds of people in the world. He says there's the irreligious, the religious, and Christians. And what he means by that is that the irreligious are people that they may not believe in God at all, atheists, they may be agnostic, or uh, they don't believe that there's any such thing as an absolute moral truth, uh, no need for any type of a faith to get to heaven if there is such a place. Uh, some even describe themselves as spiritual, right? But there's no doctrine that's follow. Maybe, hey, try to be a good person, but at the end of the day, they have no use for organized religion, they have no use or need for a God, and um, they think all is well. The next group of people are religious. These are people that practice a religion. And uh, this is all the isms, right? It's uh, Hinduism, it's Buddhism, it's Judaism, it's Islam, or Islam, (laughs) close. But it's not just isms, it's Jehovah's Witness, it's Mormons. It's everyone who is following a religion that's man-made, that's works-based, that says, I have to perform and do certain things in order to please God, or to earn my way into God's good favor or heaven. The thing that they really have in common here is their works based, and secondly, they mistreat Jesus. And by that, I don't mean like mistreated, like Jesus was mistreated on the cross. I mean, they have failed to fundamentally understand and believe who he is and what he's done for us. They answer incorrectly the most important question that Jesus ever posed when he asked his followers, who do you say that I am? Proverbs tells us on the next slide simply that there's a way that appears right to man, but in the end leads to death, right? That's groups one and two. They think we, human beings think we have it or they have it figured out. I'm going to follow my way. But God in his perfect word says that that human way, that leads to death and separation. The next slide, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. And then even more plainly in the next slide, The 14th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus says it. He says, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. I mean, how more directly can he say it, that that's the way we should be taken? As Christians, the third category of people in this world, we're not irreligious, and nor are we religious. We're not depending on our religion to get us to God. We're simply saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, what Jesus did and accomplished for us on the cross. Um, As Ephesians 2 says, we're not saved by works so that none may boast. We don't follow the way of Christ in order to get to heaven, right? We follow the way because we already know where it leads and where it's going. And we know where we're going because we know and we're following the one who is the way, the truth, and the life who made a way for us. That's Christianity. Jesus accomplished for us on the cross something we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a perfect life. He took the penalty for our sin. And then he overcame death which is awesome. That's the great hope and the blessed assurance for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And church, that should give us great cause to celebrate. Amen? Thus, the the Christian life, following the way of Jesus, it's an abundant life. It's a victorious life. Even in death, we know that we're more than conquerors. And again, what a great cause to celebrate. And that brings us to the first of our five core values, right? Our rock foundation, Jesus. These are the things that we will, um, that will help us adhere to and be like the disciples who love and live like Jesus. And the first uh, of the five is simply called celebrate. This is our first core value. Okay. Uh, you'll see over the course of, of the bulletin, of the month of September and on the bulletin cover, all these five core values are an alliteration, which is simply words that all begin with the same letter or the same sound. And this first C is celebrate. Uh, I've been walking up to people randomly over the last couple of weeks and I go, hey, we should celebrate. And the first thing they say is, Okay, I mean, everyone wants to, it seems to be cool with the concept of celebrating, but very quickly they're going to ask, well, celebrate what? Right? I mean, as a church, as followers of Jesus, in the next slide, we gather each week to celebrate not just a what, but also a who. We celebrate who God is when we're here together at Sunday morning worship. Who God is, is reason enough to celebrate. For those of us especially who have been reconciled to him through Jesus. And certainly we celebrate a what. And the what we celebrate really is one of the most amazing events that happened in the course of human history. It's it's the good news. As we see in Luke's gospel, the next slide, this is the announcement that the Messiah is coming. The angel said, that, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Great news, right? It's not just good news. It's great, great news that will bring joy to everybody. But before I go any further with this notion of of celebrating, I need to make a critically, I think, important point, which is we have to understand that our ability to adhere to the mission statement And the core values that we're going to be unpacking this month can only happen if we're enabled by God's Holy Spirit to do so. Scripture tells us that we're his workmanship. Philippians 2.3 on the next slide says, For it is God who works in you 
to will and to act in order to fill, fulfill his good purpose. So we have to understand that no amount of human effort by itself will ever enable us to love and live like Jesus. This is something that we have to do in cooperation with God. Our ability to desire to do God's will, to discern what God's will is, and then to ultimately do it, are all enabled by God himself through his Holy Spirit. The word says that we can both grieve and quench the Spirit. So it makes sense to me that we can also, I think, please and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways we cooperate is through faith, through obedience. His word says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Holy Spirit is God. Um, our obedience to God is one of the ways that we cooperate with and please the Spirit. So, if we need the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish our mission statement and to emulate it through the five core values, to me, where in this life are we most likely to find, encounter, or have the Holy Spirit? Now, for me, oftentimes it's in solitude, right? I'm in the car a lot by myself. I'm praying. I'm listening to the Word. I'm singing songs. Just solitude, listening to God. And I spend a lot of time at the piano, just playing praise and worship songs. And it's, it's cool. But Psalm 22 says that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. And in Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, wherever two or three gather in my name, there I am also with you. Hmm, God inhabits the praises of his people. Two or three gather in his name. Where, where on earth could we go to find people gathered together praising the name of God? Hmm. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a place, like even every week, we could come together in the name of Jesus Christ and praise and honor God and know that we have the promise of God that he will be there amongst us. That would be really cool. That would almost cause to celebrate, don't you think? As Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, the next slide. Or am I actually moving the slides? No, I'm not. Next slide, please. All right. Um, we're done. <laughs> this is what John told the woman at the well in John 4. He said, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter and really... It's a matter of heart, isn't it? It's not about where we go to worship. It is about the heart that we bring, who it is that we're worshiping. God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. A good celebration requires that our hearts are in it. Think about the celebrations you've attended in your life. You know, the good ones, weddings, anniversaries, birthday parties and the like. Now, be honest, have you ever gone to one of those events Kind of just to put in an appearance. Be out of a sense of obligation. I know that we have. You show up out of obligation. You put in the minimum required time. But you're really not there to partake fully in the celebration. Some of us, maybe all of us at times, can approach coming to church the same way. You know, it's we know it's something that we should do. Uh, we've touched a lot on Hebrews 10.25 here. 
uh, over the course of this summer, which is the instruction that gives us. He says, hey, don't, don't get in the habit of, of failing to, to meet together regularly as, as some are doing. But if our hearts are in it, it becomes, if our hearts are not in it, that gathering becomes more like an obligation than a celebration. And sitting in church, even every week, without a spirit-enabled heart of worship, it won't make you become a Christian. It won't make you become a better Christian any more than like sitting in your garage every day will make you become a car. All right? Um, I mean, example, I grew up in the Catholic tradition, right? I went to church, was obligated to go to church five days a week in grade school and then on Sundays. I thought I should always get the pass on Sundays, but um, I didn't. Um, and then there were other, there were holy days of obligation. That was literally the term. Now, please understand, I am not Catholic bashing, okay? Um, the term was celebrate Mass. It was celebrate communion. The priest was even referred to as the celebrant. But it never felt like a celebration to me. You know, it counted as long as you got there in time for the gospel reading and stayed through communion. You got your, your credit, if you will, for being there. But it never felt like a celebration to me. It felt like an obligation. I didn't know Jesus then, so it was really just repetitive ritual. And it wasn't spiritually beneficial for me. I was not worshiping in the spirit and in truth. And again, I don't want to imply that is the fault of Catholicism. That is who I was or wasn't, frankly, at that point in time. Okay, I know we have friends and family members who uh, are, are practice the Catholic faith and they know Jesus and they will tell you they are saved by grace through faith in what he accomplished in the cross. Okay, um, so there's nothing wrong with ritual in and of itself. Um, and we can have great celebrations, I think, that include ritualistic elements, weddings, baptisms, communion, even funerals um, can be uh, an effective celebration. But I do have a caution here. We have to be careful that the form of the manner of the celebration doesn't become more important than who or what is being celebrated, right? Have you ever talked to someone who was planning a wedding? They were getting married. Um, maybe them, their mom, the sisters, and they're just all caught up in the details of, oh my gosh, what type of font are we going to use on the invitation? Should the flowers be this, the dresses, the colors, who's going to be invited? It kills the joy. It sucks the joy out of an otherwise really awesome and wonderful, what should be an awesome and wonderful occasion or celebration in their lives. Likewise, in the church, when the form of worship becomes more important than the object of our worship, We've lost sight of why we are gathered together in the first place, and that's a problem, church. When we become more concerned with things like the the number of songs, the type of the songs, the length of the sermon, or the order or the length of the service, we've taken our eyes off the object of our worship, and we've placed our focus on ourself and our own personal preferences. That is not, I believe, what God would consider to be worshiping in the truth, in the spirit, and in truth. And that's really exactly the problem the Jewish religious leaders had in Jesus' day. They were legalistic about all, following all the rules of their religion versus worshiping the one true God. And I think in part, it's why they missed the truth of who Jesus was, that he was their Messiah. And Jesus, remember, he reserved some of the harshest words that he spoke while he was on this planet to the religious establishment of his day. You brood of vipers? That's not a well done, good and faithful servant. He says, you people honor me with your hearts. 
your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He told them in Matthew 23, their legalistic emphasis was resulting in them straining gnats, but swallowing the entire camel. And he told them that, man, the outside, you wash the outside of the cup for appearance sake, it's clean, but the inside, your hearts, they're filthy. Church, we have to rely on the Spirit of God to help us keep focused on the fact that we are celebrating who God is when we gather here. But just like the Jewish Pharisees and the Sadducees, the more religious we are, the less attractive we become. The more religious we are, the less attractive we become to each other and to the outside world. A great celebration is the exact opposite of that. A real and authentic celebration is attractive. People want to be a part of it. Think about Jesus. No one ever celebrated God more completely than he. Right? His entire life was essentially a continuous act of worship to God. He existed to glorify God. And everywhere he went, large, large crowds followed. And so much so that he had to find time to get away, to find solitude for for time alone with his father in solitude and prayer. Now, I would define the word celebrate simply as this, to gather together with a joyful purpose. Okay, And a good party always attracts a crowd. No, not enough time for that one. But think about like Michigan State tailgating, right? I mean, you walk through across campus and there's gatherings of people all over uh, the, the campus grounds. And you just see some areas where there's just throngs of people where it's going on. Um, I will tell this quick story. Two years ago at Burt Lake, family vacation, before the uh, official start of the Burt Lake Family Dance Challenge, everyone gets a night in the kitchen, right, where it, over the course of the week there's a large group of us. So um, Laura and I had our turn to cook. And uh, so we're getting ready to start the meal, starting the prep work. And when you're cooking, you get to choose the music, right? So we've got my go-to. And it's, it's a Hall & Oates song, but it's the version from Live at Daryl's House where CeeLo Green joins Daryl Hall to do I Can't Go For That. And so we got it going, you know. We're just, this is where we live. And music's playing, getting ready to dice some onions, chop some celery. And my then nine-year-old East Anya comes running through the kitchen she was going to the refrigerator to get a drink. And all of a sudden, she sees Laura and I are dancing. She's just like, she just stops and starts to party. And it's like, literally, she's like, so wh- why are we, what are we partying? Why are we, you know, celebrating? She didn't even know. I'm just telling you, a good celebration is attractive. And, and people will join in. Um, Josie was in France this summer when France won the World Cup. You don't think that was a celebration? She sent us a video of people like in this little town that she was in, dancing in fountains. And, and more and more of them just coming out to come together. I'm telling you that, that authentic celebration is attractive. And we can celebrate in a lot of different ways, and we can celebrate a lot of different things. But you know what? Notice this. We rarely celebrate alone. You know, if you, to have a high-five moment, you got to have, like, another hand, or it's just like a whatever. You can't feed the chicken without another hand. The... <laughs> Think about the best celebrations that you've gone to in your life. The best weddings, birthdays, anniversaries, other victories, accomplishments, milestones that you've celebrated. What is it that distinguishes the really, really good ones from the mediocre ones? For me, what separates the best celebrations from the ones that that aren't maybe so good 
really comes down to how much the person or the event that's being celebrated matters to me. And then the equal second is probably just as important as who else is also there celebrating with me. Those are the two things that are the best celebrations. When the person or the event matters so much to me, and when I'm there with people that also matter much to me. I've been to weddings for some of my cousin's kids. We don't live near them. Um, we don't really know the, the kids that well. Um, but, you know, it's a family thing. It's cool to get together with family and be there and celebrate. But we don't know them that well. Um, I imagine it was, it's going to be a little different when uh, I walk my, my own daughters down the aisle. You know, when it was certainly different when Laura and I got married. That was a, a celebration that we were vested in, for sure. Um, Spartans a national championship, right? That is cause to celebrate as opposed to Alabama winning another one of their cajillionth in a row or whatever. It's good for Alabama, but I don't care. Sparty's what matters to me, so that's where I'm celebrating. You know, if that happens, I don't want to be out of town traveling or alone on the road. I want to be here in Michigan. I want to be with my peeps, you know, having that, that reveling, the accomplishment of our team. When I was uh, 14, uh, the football team I played on, we won a state championship. That was a celebration. It really was. We experienced a whole lot. We went through a lot together as a team, and that formed a bond that really it made us feel like brothers almost. And it was just so joyful to participate in that accomplishment together with people that mattered so much and were so special to me. And so it is, or at least it should be, as we come together each week as the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, Experiencing the ups and downs of life together and carrying out, carrying each other's burdens, mourning when we mourn, rejoicing when we rejoice, doing life together. I can certainly worship and celebrate God sitting alone at my piano, but man, there's something just so much more special when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and lift up the name of Jesus and sing songs of praise to God of who He is. It, it is, just celebrating who God is in the spirit and in truth. That is, is, it is cool. It is purposeful. It is joyful. It is a celebration. So I want to walk through a great example of what this looks like from scripture. Did you find the rest of the slides or are you just teasing me? All right. This is the perfect slide to be looking at. I could not have picked a better slide for you to be looking at. Um, so in order to, to go through this, this story quickly, first, um, we need to understand a little bit of a, a history of the Ark of the Covenant. What, archaeology, right? That's the study of the Ark. No? <clears throat> That's the funniest thing I'm going to say all morning. <laughs> Rut-row. <laughs> this one? Okay. Um, so let's go to... Uh, 1 Samuel 4 and 5 is the back, backdrop of this story. So at this point in time in Israel's history, uh, they have turned away again from God. It's the time of the judge or the prophet Eli, uh, prior to Samuel taking over as the prophet. Um, they are routed by the Philistines in battle, and the Philistines capture the ark and they bring it back to their land. But the, then bad things start happening in every city that the Philistines bring the ark to. So they keep like passing it on to the next city and there are tumors and plagues and people dying. So um, eventually the leaders get together and like, we got to get rid of this thing. We need to send it back. We have, we apparently have angered God. Um, 
So they devised a plan that said, we're going to take two ox, or I'm sorry, two cows that have calved, but have never been yoked, meaning hooked up to a wagon. We're going to team them up together. We're going to put the ark on it. We're going to put all of the gold and, and uh, offerings that we're making to Israel's God. And we're going to just say giddy up. And if the cows wander off aimlessly, we'll know that, look, this is just circumstantial. But if the cows go back to Israel's land, then we know that this is uh, the work of, of their God, why all these calamities have fallen upon us. So sure enough, the, the cows, they don't veer to the left or to the right. Down the road they go back to uh, Israel. So fast forward to Second Samuel 6, which tells us how the ark finally makes its way back to Jerusalem. So they, they put it on a cart. Um, I'm sorry, David has now been anointed and appointed king. And uh, he defeats the Jebusites that are inhabiting Jerusalem, and now it is the capital again. It's the city of David. And David takes 30,000 men to Judah to get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. They put it on the cart, uh, and they start making their way back to town. A couple things happen. I won't bore you with those details. But it was a big detail. And we see in verse 5 of 2 Samuel 6 that David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with various types of instruments. But the ark has come home and David and all of Israel are celebrating with all their might before the Lord. And then as they're entering the city, it goes on to say in verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shout and sounds of trumpet. They were celebrating. They were celebrating with good cause. The ark represented the presence of God. And God, they were were back in his presence. This was like, this was Super Bowl Sunday times 10 for David and for all of Israel. But David's wife, Michal, King Saul's daughter, um, She's watching all this from her window as they come into Jerusalem. She saw David leaping and dancing uh, before the Lord. And the text says she despised him in her heart. Wow. So David then, uh, he has burnt offerings. He makes uh, sacrificial offerings, fellowship offerings. He blesses all the people. They all get a loaf of bread. They all get date cakes. <clears throat> he blesses them and he sends them home. Then he returns to his own house, you know, to... <clears throat> bless his own household, um, but his wife's not happy with him. And she chastises him for being unkingly, for being undignified, and dancing half, half naked in front of the slave girls. And then David says to, to uh, Michal, It was before the Lord who appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. You know, it it becomes readily apparent to me that that the Bible describes David as a man after the Lord's own heart. And I believe he had a dance partner that day, the Holy Spirit. He was worshiping in the Spirit. And we know in his own words that he was dancing for an audience of one, the Lord. What a great picture this is, I think, of how our hearts should be as we come together to worship and celebrate who God is each week and to celebrate who he is. And here we are back on the final slide. Hint, clue, worship team. <clears throat> the, uh, the book of Revelation tells of a great wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's going to be an awesome celebration. 
And those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus are going to be at that banquet. We'll be celebrating as Christ's bride, the church, as we're finally united with our King. And I think as we get together here every week, it's an opportunity to, to preview that, to get a tiny taste of what that celebration is going to be like. We can, it helps us to practice and prepare and develop our hearts to taste and see just how good the Lord is. But that will only happen if we choose to keep our eyes on the object of our worship and come with a celebratory heart instead of just putting in an appearance. Whether our experience at church weekly is, feels like a celebration or an obligation, It's really a choice. It comes down to how will we choose to come into the presence of God each day? Obligation or celebration? Choice is ours. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We pray that, aided by your spirit, that we can come together here each week with a heart like David's, celebrating who you are and not out of a sense of obligation. God, we thank you for the joy and the hope that we have through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.